question we learn to ask early in our lives is, what is the center of our solar system? Is it planet Earth with the sun revolving around us, or do we revolve around the sun? This question vexed astronomers for centuries. It took a long time for collected knowledge and scientific tools to provide a definitive answer. Even ancient scholars proposed a heliocentric model, that is that the sun is the central hub around which planets revolve, but they were unable to prove it. In the 13th century, Greek astronomer Ptolemy's geocentric model, the sun and the planets revolve around the earth, that was the official position for some time, and really for good reason, because everything that we observe on this earth seems to indicate that by casual observance. Do we observe the earth hurtling through space at a high rate of speed? Is there a constant wind in one direction in our faces whenever we're outside, as when we now ride a bike? If the earth is moving... Think of the earth is is moving quickly. What happens to those things that go up in the air? I mean, this seems to bring an end to baseball. 3-2 pitch, the crack of the bat. It's a long drive to deep left center. Never mind, the pitcher just caught it close to home plate. I mean, we don't observe that. It doesn't seem to make any sense. If the earth is flying through space in its rotation around the sun. Why do clouds and birds not race past us as we look up, as they're unconnected to the earth? From what we observe, the earth is stationary. From what we observe, the sun revolves around us. Ptolemy was right. Well, enter into the equation what is called today the Copernican Revolution. In the early 1500s, astronomer Nicholas Copernicus challenged Ptolemy's geocentric system. With more powerful telescopes and pooled knowledge, Copernicus's theory, which he could not even prove, was eventually proven to be the case. And so today, from that account, we have what is often used as a figure speech, the Copernican Revolution. Revolution, a figure speech describing some radical shift in one's previous perception of reality. Everything shifts from that new perspective. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead is the ultimate perceptual revolution. It is a paradigm-shifting reality for all who have observed on earth that death is final. It is unconquerable. But what is even more? Placing your trust in the achievement of Christ's death and resurrection becomes a Copernican revolution in how you relate to God. That is, acting upon the resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul experienced such a Copernican revolution. And we're privileged today to consider his recounting 
an interpretation of this paradigm shift in his life. And it permits us to test our own lives and our own walk with God against this experience. I invite you to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians chapter 3. We know of Saul as he was originally known, born a Jew in the cosmopolitan Roman city of Tarsus. He was a brilliant and passionate young man, and his wealthy father eventually sent Saul to Jerusalem to study the Hebrew Scriptures. There, Saul quickly distinguished himself among his peers, and he was chosen as a disciple of the preeminent rabbi in Israel, Gamaliel. Saul rose quickly to a place of prominence as a young adult with unusual devotion to God and an impeccable religious pedigree coupled with his capacities intellectually among God's chosen people. And then came Saul's spiritual Copernican revolution where everything changed. His whole universe changed before his very eyes. That paradigm shift landed Saul, now known as Paul, the apostle or official representative of Jesus of Nazareth. It landed him in prison. Paul, as he writes this letter of Philippians, is in prison for proclaiming that Jesus the Messiah died to suffer God's wrath against sinners. He died in the sinner's place in order to pay that penalty. And Paul is in prison in Rome, most likely, for proclaiming that Jesus literally and eternally conquered death through resurrection. Now Paul writes to the church that he started at Philippi concerned that false teachers are undermining this message, this life-transforming message of salvation, they are pressuring the Philippians to return to the standard way of relating to God, to the way that people relate to God by mere observation. They hadn't yet experienced, it doesn't appear, this Copernican revolution themselves, spiritually speaking, and so they are pressuring the Philippians from the outside to turn back to that standard way. You can imagine how that affects the Apostle Paul and how he calls upon these people to respond in opposing these false teachers and in recording the interpretation of his own experience. Paul strikes at the heart of true spirituality in this classic text. It is a vital text in the New Testament for us to understand he lays it out basically in two concepts, looking first of all at the way of self-reliant religion. This is the way of observation. This is the way it seems to be. Self-reliant religion, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3. He continues in this book saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Finally, I think we should not read too much into that word. It's a simple transition to the second half of the book. We could almost translate it, so then. Rejoice in the Lord. He said this a number of times. It's a major theme in this book. And a word of vital encouragement as the church faces pressures from within and from without. It's a troubled world. It's a sinful world. And we need to choose to rejoice in the Lord. 
that is in vital union with Him as the body of Christ. Identified with Him. United with Him through faith in His death and resurrection. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I'm going to write some of the same things I've said to you before. Probably, perhaps in writing, but certainly in His teaching to them in previous times. I think is the idea here. I've taught you before and I'm going to teach you again. Repetition is so vital to Christianity because we are always tracking back to the heart. To the heart of the matter. The objective, revealed Word of God. Always coming back and reminding ourselves of that center. So I've taught you these things before. I've warned you in this way before. It's no problem for me to do it again. For you it's safe. That word, the Greek word behind, that's translated here, safe, misses us a little. The idea is it's not just safe from attack, but it's stabilizing. It's firming up, almost like an army that's standing in a solid position of defense against the attack that will come. So it's stabilizing for, you, for me to remind you again. Paul had warned them often of the corruption of the message of Christ crucified and risen. And he feels compelled to do so again here. And so he says, verse 2, look out for dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Wow, that sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? The Philippians know exactly who Paul's talking about. It's a little less clear to us, but these are clearly people who are opposed to the message that Paul's preaching that the Philippians have embraced to salvation. There's a lot of irony, I think, in this verse. Paul employs irony to describe these false teachers who dogged all of his evangelistic efforts. Ironically, they called the Gentiles dogs. In that day, a term of great derision. They saw themselves as workers of righteousness priding themselves in their obedience to the Mosaic Law, and they prided themselves in circumcision, that is, the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. And they even pressed all Christians, saying, even if you're a Gentile, you must receive circumcision in order to be identified with the people of God. So we put together, though we don't know precisely who they are, it starts to become clear that these are Jewish people who claim to follow Jesus Christ, but are seeking to bring all Christians under the Old Covenant, its observances. Understanding Jesus as Messiah, they are pursuing salvation ultimately in the old way. In the way that Christ came to fulfill and ultimately even to supersede. But their false teaching is actually rendering them the dogs. It meant that they were workers of evil, not of righteousness. And since Christ had fulfilled the law, they now practice not circumcision, but just pure mutilation. It was of utterly no value what they were doing. In fact, it was utterly destructive to the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all to which these observances pointed. Now clearly, there's a lot here that really doesn't apply to you and me. This isn't our world. This isn't our fight. But let's not move on too quickly. Because the same orientation is alive in our day, and it may be alive in your heart. These false teachers were Jewish Christians, as we've said. They demanded that 
others who follow Christ submit to the terms of the Old Covenant. Now think of that. They believed we are saved by earning credit with God through participation in ritual observances, not seeing that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. And that is now through faith in Him, not through ritual observance, that we are saved. That is pretty applicable. The world over today, Christians in name will gather who believe in a continuing priesthood, an earthly priesthood that perpetually sacrifices the body of Jesus Christ. Think of it. In their ritual observances, continuing to sacrifice Christ, denying the sufficiency of Christ's final sacrifice for sin on the cross. We're not all that far removed in some respects. It all looks different. It's the same thing. In contrast to this orientation to ritual worship, Paul claims for all true believers, in contrast, verse 3, for we are the circumcision. We could put there the true circumcision, the real circumcision is what he's saying. We are the circumcision. What are the evidences? We worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The true circumcision, the old covenant spoke of circumcision of the heart under a new covenant between God and His people, a covenant inaugurated by Jesus Christ. That new heart is marked by three characteristics. Characteristics of those who have encountered the Copernican revolution of faith in Jesus. What are they? We worship by the Spirit. That is, we worship in the new age of salvation as indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We do not worship according to the ritual observances of the law of Moses. We are part of the new order, of the new man created in Christ Jesus and indwelt by His Spirit. We worship God by the Spirit of God. And secondly, we glory in Christ Jesus. And that means, in context, Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus' sacrifice for sin saves us from God's just wrath, so we glory in Christ. We don't glory in what we do. We don't boast in what we accomplish. We glory in Him. And thirdly, we have the opposite of that, we have no confidence in the flesh. We don't put our faith and our trust in who we are and what we do. We boast in the achievement of Christ, not in our own works. And so true believers boast not in self-achievement and good works, not in this, but in a report, not in a report about ourselves, but in a piece of news about Christ. And that, friends, is revolutionary. It's revolutionary. Catch this. True believers boast not in self-achievement, not in who we are and what we do, but in what Christ has done. And Paul's warning here is false teachers want you to focus on ritual observances and religious pedigree. Now, let's not think at this point 
that Paul fails to understand this natural tendency to believe that we can earn God's favor by good works. We need to be good people in order for God to determine that we're good people. That's very natural to think that way. And Paul says, I get it. It's not because I was a failure as a Jew that I've come to Christianity. Please understand, verse 4. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have even more. If you believe you can earn God's approval by your religious deeds and your religious heritage, look at Paul. Verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the chosen people of God. I did not become one through circumcision later in life, but on the eighth day, in accordance with the law, I was among the people chosen by God. Of all the inhabitants on earth, he had the privilege of being born into this nation. He says, continuing, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, one of only two tribes to remain loyal to the messianic line of David and return to the promised land after the captivity of Babylon. I was part of that tribe. Verse 5, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That is, I was pure blood. I was a real Jew through and through. And to top all of that off, I was a Pharisee, a member of one of the most devout sects in Israel. That's all I did was religious observance. Paul's whole life was dedicated to the study of Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures, to careful observance of the law, to prayer. And was he zealous for God in all of this, or was it just dead ritual? Verse 6 is proof of that. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Now that doesn't sound good to us, of course. But think of it from his angle. He sees the Christians as attacking the truth of God's Word. He had the kind of zeal that did not just say, you know what? We'll just let those people go. They're not hurting me. He went after them. He went after them to stop them. He was filled with zeal for the true faith as he saw it. He's simply illustrating how devout he was. Sincerely wrong, Paul was nonetheless sincere. Verse 6 continues, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. It doesn't mean sinless. It certainly includes repentance when he recognizes sin. But no one could take the law of Moses, line it up to the life of Paul, and say, look, here, here, and here, you're off track. Paul could say, I live the law, and no one argued. He put everyone around him to shame. He silenced them. If anyone on the planet could say, He earned God's approval by religious heritage, devout observance, and good deeds. That person was Saul of Tarsus. And to make this personal, there's nobody in this room today that could measure up to him. No matter your birth, no matter your denomination, no matter your religious practice, none of us could add up to this. This was 24-7-365, utter, no-holds-barred devotion to God. That was me. 
operative word was. Now comes the Copernican revolution of faith. Doing the best you can to earn God's approval makes perfect sense. We live our lives seeking the approval of people to one degree or another. We shower, we brush our teeth, we drive on the right side of the road. We paint our houses and keep our yards respectably clean. We pay pay for things, we pay taxes, we obey the laws of the land, even when we don't feel like it. And on some level, at some degree, that's just normal observance that you do these things and people, you get along with people. And you gain some level of approval that just makes life move a little more smoothly. It's very, very natural to think then that that's how I relate to God. I do good things to get along and He approves It makes perfect sense. And religion comes into the picture and we add some rites and some rituals and some practices to help us know how to please God, how to get along with Him, what laws to follow, what rituals to follow so that we can gain His approval. I'm a good person. He says I'm a good person. We get along, just like with my neighbors. But in the verses that follow, Paul lays out the Copernican revolution of how we actually gain God's approval. And let me say, this may prove troubling to you if you really hear it. So he's laid out the way of self-generated religion. Now at verse 7, Paul lays out the way of Christ-centered faith. Notice what he says about all of his pedigree, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All my religious efforts, all the ritual observances, all the acts of goodness, all the devotion to God, all of it piled up together was a deficit. He is not saying that I piled it all together and it blew away in dust and it was a zero. He's saying, actually, it was a liability. Why is that, Paul? Because all of his good deeds, all of his religious efforts blinded him to the need to be reconciled to God through meeting Jesus the Messiah. When Paul met Jesus, Paul once for all counted all of his religious goodness as a deficit. He expands the thought in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss, as a deficit, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish a kind of a nasty word that he uses there in order that i may gain christ anything that may have boosted paul's confidence in himself for salvation he continues to consider a loss and paul did in fact lose it all think of him leaving jerusalem he's on his way to damascus to crush Christians there 
He's the big man. He's the big man with an entourage leaving Jerusalem with the authority of the rabbis in Jerusalem, a zealous Pharisee on his way to Damascus to trounce Christians in God's name. But on that road, he meets Christ. There is a vision of Jesus Christ. There is a conversation that is had, and it is a Copernican revolution for Saul of Tarsus. He recognizes the one he's opposing is the Messiah sent by God for the salvation of the world. And everything he studied in the Old Testament suddenly comes alive and is recalibrated. Christ is at the center of it all, not Paul. Not his religious efforts. And let me tell you, when he came to that realization, he lost it all. This one, the big cheese coming out of Jerusalem with the entourage to do the things that were needed to be done, you know how he leaves Damascus? In a basket, at the end of a rope, hung through a window on the outside of the wall, escaping into the dark of night. Same guy. He lost everything that he had gained. All the reputation, all the pedigree, it now meant nothing. And all of that, he said, I willingly let go. In fact, that was all in the way so that I can have the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I'll give up everything that I've achieved, everything that I have, that I might know him, that I might have a relationship with Christ. Your Copernican revolution hinges on that, and it is this. The key is not religious observance. The key is a relationship. Don't think, what can I do? How can I improve? How can I please God by my efforts? Think relationship. It's not what you do, it's who you know that is the key. This changed everything for Paul. Paul's trust in self-generated, self-promoting religious effort was in the way of knowing Christ. And Paul is relieved that it's all gone. If we could picture this by illustration, it's like Paul is in a, in a jail cell and the door of that cell is an iron gate. And Christ comes to that gate and He unhinges it and it comes crashing to the floor. And there is now freedom to enter into the salvation of God through the work of Jesus crucified and risen. And what is Saul of Tarsus doing? He's sitting there in his jail cell and he's looking at these bricks. He can get them from outside now. He gets those bricks and he takes one brick at a time, his self-righteous good deeds, and he starts to wall up the entrance to the cell. One good deed cemented on top of another, one brick at a time, walling off his exit to salvation and eternity. Damascus Road was mercy. And Christ came and kicked down the brick wall. 
and Paul's eyes were opened, and he saw, I must escape. And these bricks walling off the entrance to my cell, I'm killing myself. I'm taking my own life. And we need to respond to this revelation that he saw in our own understanding of the reality. And that is that your good deeds, if they are trusted in, not arguing against good deeds as such, but if those good deeds are being appealed to by you as the way that you please God, it's like you're rubbing your bricks and kissing your bricks and putting them in place one at a time, letting the cement dry as you cut yourself off from the way of salvation in Christ. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In our own strength, according to our own purposes, what we do that is good to please God is useless. You're kissing your bricks. One at a time, piling up your achievements, and they're walling you off from salvation in Christ by faith. They're killing you. Paul said, I, I blew by the wall. Jesus knocked it down. I walked out. I took his hand unto salvation that I may know him. What does it mean to gain Christ, to win Christ? In this illustration, it's like taking his hand and walking out into the sunlight and being delivered. But he describes it here in verse 9 as, first of all, to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from where? From God that depends on faith. Now this is a systematic theology category, but he talks here about justification. Gaining Christ means justification. To be found in Him is a reference to spiritual union with Jesus. This union is received when a sinner repents of sin, trusts the good news that Jesus died to pay the penalty of my sin, died in my place to pay the cost and rose from the dead to give me victory over death and sin. I'm then found in Him. He's the center of my universe. Or as Paul puts it in 121, for me to live is Christ in union with Him. Secondly, it means righteousness from God. Notice this. It depends on faith in contrast to a righteousness of my own that comes from obedience to the law. Listen, there's nothing wrong with God's law. There's nothing wrong with keeping God's law, although there were obviously certain observances that were purely ritual and meant to teach and direct us to Christ. It's not that the law was broken. But when we propose to earn God's approval by our good works, we obey the law in the flesh, and we always then glory in self. That's what Paul did, and that is what you are doing unless you have come to exchange self at the center of your universe with Jesus at the center of everything. There's, just, there's no other possibility. It's either Jesus at the center of it all, or it's yourself there in your own religious efforts and religious deeds, and every religion on this planet outside of genuine Christianity places those rituals, those observances, that self-goodness at the heart of it all. 
There may be people you look to for help. There may be people who are better than you. But really, at the end of the day, it depends upon you and what you do. This righteousness, says Paul, my righteousness with all that I did comes from God. It's a gift. He knew he had not knocked down the gate on the cell. He knew that Jesus had kicked in his brick wall. This salvation is from God. So number one, gaining Christ is gaining justification. Secondly, gaining Christ means sanctification. Verse 10, that is spiritual growth in Him and new affections. Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Verse 10, these several ideas, that I may know Him. Christianity is a person, and it is a life. It is not a religion. It is not merely a tradition. And the power of His resurrection, that is the powerful operation of His resurrection in our lives as His people. This is the power over sin and death, which is operative now in our lives and assures us of immortality. The power of His resurrection and sharing in His sufferings, that is proclaiming this message in a world that is set against it, is you're going to get hit. Paul says, I rejoice in that suffering because I know this is the truth. And then fourthly, becoming like Him in His death. That is, in light of chapter 2, this means conforming to the will of God, paying any price, even unto death, submitting in service to the purposes of God, That's a Christ-centered life. And this from the man who once opposed Jesus with every fiber of his being and sought to kill his people, now imprisoned for him. My hope in life is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and conformity even unto death. So gaining Christ means justification. God's righteousness given to me as a gift. It means knowing Christ and walking in the life of the gospel in sanctification. And thirdly, glorification, verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the definitive point where Christ's righteousness is ours, the ongoing work of salvation where we are changing affections and gaining new concepts in Christ of how to live our life in fellowship with Him and then ultimately looking forward to salvation, future, and glorification. It's all in a nutshell here. Paul's not expressing doubt here when he says, if by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And he's not saying I, could, I would do wrong in order to get there. That would be impossible. He simply expresses his aspiration to experience the final consummation of his relationship with Christ. The risen Savior, united to Him, I will enter into ultimately glorification. He'll say more about that later in the chapter. We've got to ask, in light of Paul's account, what is the center of my soul? What's the center of your soul? Can you really say to live is Christ? He's the sun, so to speak, around which everything in my life orbits. 
He's the ultimate affection. He is the ultimate worth. He is the ultimate source of salvation in which I trust. Can you truly say that? Have you come to the Copernican revolution in your spiritual journey where you've realized that Jesus, not self, must be at the center of everything? Again, it's natural observance that good works gain approval. But the Bible crashes down that perspective with no mercy. First of all, when we think I can gain God's approval, I can achieve my salvation through my good works, the first thing we don't understand is the holiness of God and what His requirement actually is. How great and how holy He is. We miss that to begin with. And then we don't understand our own depravity. How even our good works are infused with our own self-centered ways. And we don't understand the death of Jesus in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of sin. I don't need that if I'm depending on myself. I don't need Him to do that for me. I've had people even tell me that. I can't receive this gospel message because then I feel like I owe one to God. My whole existence depends on what somebody else has done for me, and I can't live with that. You can't live without that. You're going to die and face Christ who died for you as your only answer. And you're going to say, I didn't need you. And what it misses is that Jesus literally rose from the dead. That life in the life to come rests on the one who conquered death in this world. Are you depending on yourself? Are you at the heart of your own personal universe? In my home office, I have a few trophies on a shelf that I earned playing basketball in very inferior settings. I was played for a bottom feeder uh, below Division Three in college, but I got some trophies for doing it. <laughs> now imagine that I get those trophies together and I pile them into a big bag. And the reason that I do so is this. At Target Center in Minneapolis, the NBA finals are being held, and I desperately want to go and see those finals. And there's no tickets left. And I hear rumor that, on, that there's somebody selling some for in the million-dollar range to get to this finals, this seventh game of the NBA finals. And a million, I don't have that kind of money. I can't possibly, I couldn't sell everything I owned and, and have that ticket. So I pile all of my trophies in a bag and I go to Target Center and I walk up to the ticket counter and I put my trophies, they're all plastic, but I put them on, 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 the, on the desk and I go, look, I was a basketball player. And, 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 and these trophies, I earned these. I actually put the ball through the hoop and I did the things necessary. And, and I, 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 Look at this. This should get me into the game, right? Because I'm a basketball player. But it won't be long, I'll be in a padded truck on my way to county. And that's where I'm going to spend the NBA game seven. You're a nutcase. What? That doesn't get you in here. But as I'm standing there, 
The commissioner of the NBA walks down the hallway, sees what I'm doing, takes pity on me, introduces himself, and says, listen, why don't you come with me? I have an extra seat in my box. And I'll let you sit there and watch Game 7 of the NBA Finals. Now what fool would take those trinkets in that bag and say, well, I've got these, I don't really need you. Or what fool would say, can I bring these with me? You say, listen, we'll put them behind the counter and you can come back and get them later if you really care to. But you can't come in here with those. This is silliness. Come with me and I'll get you in. Your achievements are ultimately irrelevant. The key in this situation is to know the commissioner. It's not what I've done, it's who I know. Listen, as we think along those lines in our relationship to God, we're not talking about a stupid basketball game. Can't believe those words left my mouth. (laughs) We're not talking about a stupid basketball game. We're talking about getting into the presence of God. That's not a game, and that's really big. We're going to stand before the God of the universe, and I'm telling you, you're going to feel really silly with a bag of religious trophies to present to him. They are going to be irrelevant. As Ephesians 2 helps us, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The glory of heaven is not going to be you and your bag of trophies. The glory of heaven will be Jesus Christ crucified and risen. You've heard it. Someday you're going to see it. Get ready. As Titus 2 says, as 3 says, He saved us not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Jesus in His mercy stopped Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus. Jesus in his mercy, so to speak, kicked down the brick wall that Saul was erecting. And only Jesus in His mercy can rescue you from your own self-centered universe. Knowing Christ, not trusting self, is the key. You say, knowing Him. Knowing Him. How do I meet Him? It's an amazing thing that happens when we want to. When we're willing to lay aside our sin, to repent of our wickedness and self-trust, and to turn to Him for saving grace. The Apostle Peter said, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. There is a testament to the reality of faith that we can know what Christ has done, we can trust what Christ has done, and we can come to love Him who we've never seen. Now Paul would seen Him. 
Paul can, or Peter rather, had seen him and he can say, I love him. But he doesn't say that here. He says, you love him. And you've never seen him. Because his spirit is alive. When his body conquered death, when he rose from the dead and was ascended to heaven and seated at the Father's right hand, he sent his spirit and his spirit is here. And if his spirit transforms you, if you come to trust in Christ crucified and risen for the salvation from God's wrath in your life, that spirit's presence will produce a love for Christ. It will be a spiritual revolution, a Christocentric universe that transforms and saves, and you will walk in fellowship with the one that God sent to bring us salvation. To live is Christ, then, and to die is gain.